Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Phil Hiver, Assistant Professor of Foreign and Second Language Acquisition in the College of Education at Florida State University. Dr. Hiver, welcome to Lost in Citations. Thanks, Jonathan. Happy to be here. It's great to talk to you. You're in Tallahassee, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. I've never been to Tallahassee, I don't think. We say that it's like South Georgia because when you come here, you expect sunny weather and you don't realize that it's freezing at this time of year. <laughs> but we're literally five minutes away from the Georgia border. So the, the state line, the Florida-Georgia state line is about three miles away from where we, where we are right now. How long have you lived in Tallahassee? So this is my fourth year. I arrived here in 2017. Um, and I could have ended up somewhere else, but I'm glad I ended up here. So it was, it was a good move. Well, I'm sure they're very glad to have you as well. I would say that you and your co-researcher, co-author, Ali Al-Hori, are, I don't know if you can even call you up-and-coming rising stars. Maybe you are stars now. Um, you're coming out with a lot of very important publications, both in paper form and chapters and books. You're winning some awards. I think you were just recognized as a, what was the award you just won as an up-and-coming? That might have been the Early Career Research Award. That's it, yeah. I think I still am an early career researcher. I certainly see myself that way. I'm, but we, we had a little bit of a conversation before the show. I, I, I would say in some ways it's really good when you hear about people like you and Ali Al-Hori. It's the, the standard, I, I would say, is being risen in the research field of social science. And in some ways it's really encouraging um, a lot of the things that you're thinking about, I, I think about as well. And now the other side, it's very intimidating because you, someone like me, I could say, oh my gosh, they're so far ahead of me. Um, but it is, it's encouraging. At the, it, it isn't, I would say it's more encouraging than intimidating. I, I don't actually know if Ali told you the story of how we sort of, you know, there was a creative collision of sorts. Did he tell you that story? No, no, please. So we were both supervised by Zoltan Dornier at the University of Nottingham. Mm -hmm. And I think it might have been in our second year, first or second year. And of course, Zoltan always has a large contingent of doctoral students and spends a lot of time supervising them, but also likes them to do their own thing. So early on, he, we had some conversations and you know, he, he took us aside and he said, you know, you, you'd work really well together, you two. You ought to sit down, put your heads together and see what you could come up with. And at the time, I think I didn't know Ali. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm nothing like Ali. If you, if you put us together in a room and you look at us, we're almost polar opposites. I'm tall and white. He's swarthy and, and smaller. <laughs> and, but we did, sat, we did sit down together. And what do you know, five, six years on, we are, you know, working together in a way that there's this synergy that we couldn't do work like this alone. So it was, it was serendipitous for Zoltan to put us together because ever since then we, you know, sparked ideas and yeah, it's, it's just been great. I, I really enjoyed talking with him. Uh, by the time this interview comes out, his interview is, is out where we talked about your paper, reexamining the role of vision in second language motivation, a pre-registered conceptual replication of you, Dornier and Sizer. Now in, in that conversation, we talked about how courageous it was for you to do that project at the time. Now, at that time, 
again, before we started recording, I said on, on a zero to 10, I would say 10 is the book author as far as knowledge. And I'm mm-hmm. around like a three or four in the book that we're talking about today, which is Research Methods for Complexity Theory and Applied Linguistics. At that time, where were you on the, on the scale as far as your, your knowledge and confidence in complexity theory and research methods? Around 2016, or do you mean earlier than that? Well, 2016 is when you pre-registered the paper. Mm-hmm. So I would say, yeah, around that, around that period of time, 2014 to 2016. So I can actually tell you how I came to it. Um, yes, please. I had, I had done my master's degree with Zoltan's supervision, under Zoltan's supervision, um, and that was 2009, 2010, when I, I emailed him and I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to continue on. There's more there. And I, I really don't think I'm finished learning all I have to learn. And like with Ali, he also put it off and he said, you know, come back in a while. Eventually I did. And I said, look, I have an offer from someone at the School of Education in Nottingham to study autonomy. And he said, oh, in that case, great. Um, when can you start? You know, and so 2010, I think, was when I began my began thinking about doing my Ph.D., and we had these conversations and, you know, when you talk to someone inspiring like Zoltan, just the smallest comment can spark off an entirely new line of kind of inquiry. And so he would come up with questions and comments like, gee, I wonder what would happen if you went and explored this or, you know, I'd be really interested to see what you make of this book. Hmm. And one of those books he talked about was the Larson Freeman and Cameron book that they wrote in 2008 about complex systems and applied linguistics. Hmm. and he told me that he was convinced that this was, you know, the future. There was something there and it was going to have a decent shelf life. And I basically started reading voraciously everything I get my hands on in our field and outside our field about complex systems and dynamic systems theory. Mm-hmm. And then, so this was around 2010, around the same time I became a parent. And that really drove home for me that the way I was doing research and the way I had done it in my first graduate degree really wasn't adequate that the world was so much more complex and, you know, you have it to grapple with partial knowledge and things that we can never really understand and uncover, but still try and approximate what's happening in a scientific way. And then when I began my PhD, I knew I was going to be using this theory. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. And then around the time when I first met Diane, Diane Larson Freeman, um, that was 2014. And by that point I was already, I, I would say I was completely immersed in complexity theory. Wow. It was it was part of my everyday existence. You know, my my nighttime reading was like the handbook of com- what was it? The Encyclopedia of Complexity, which mm. was like a ten thousand page, fourteen volume tome about every concept imaginable in complex systems. So you so, said when when you had um, your your child, mm-hmm. that's when your eyes opened about uh, like chaos and how things don't really organize the way you think they should organize. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. I don't know if you're a parent. Yeah, I am. I am. Something as simple as trying to decide how you should keep your child healthy and what they should eat and how much activity they should have during the day. The number of hours of screen time they should have are so complex and determined by so many different interlinked factors that it, it, it's almost mind boggling when you try and decide, okay, they're going to, or they're not going to have this candy bar. 
And, and when you realize that things are so interwoven and there are so many consequences that sort of cascade into each other, and then when you start thinking about your own practice as a practitioner, whether that's in the classroom or as a researcher, in the same way, it kind of just blows your mind, right? So that's where I was. Well, and that's why I really appreciate what you're doing. And, and again, the book is Research Methods for Complexity Theory in Applied Linguistics because the more you think about it, yeah, the dynamic system of the language classroom is amazingly interesting. And as the, the amount of factors that are going on, it's like you and Ali are sort of ushering this new wave of research that, that can happen. And it, it's sort of aligning with where I'm going. Personally, I think at some point I'd like to branch off from second language research and go more into performance coaching or, you know, helping people with maybe performance anxiety or lots of other things. But my, mm -hmm. my advisor at McCoy, I have two advisors. One is, um, um, a psychologist, um, a practicing psychologist, uh, and the other is a, is a statistics person. And they're, they're really interested in these converging fields where they're saying, look, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you're doing this kind of research, if, it, if it's all aligning in the whole field of psychology. And so now it's sort of opening my eyes that oh, this, this field in the second language classroom, there's so many things going on. Now I'm almost second guessing. We're like, no, maybe I will stay in this field. There's, there's too much to, there's too much to look into now. Like before I, I couldn't really see, like I couldn't really see all the things that were going on, but now it's like, it's infinite. It's in, um, what is it? Infant, in, not infantless. <laughs> it's it, it, uh, a word. endless. Yeah. Infinite. Infinite. Yeah. Right. I mean, the other thing that I can share with you is, you know, when we started thinking about the work we would do around complexity theory for Ali and I, it was just kind of trying to solve problems. And in those early, I would say, you know, 2013, 2014, a lot of talk about the promise of complexity theory, but also a little bit of doom and gloom because it just seemed so impenetrable. And for mm. many people, they had no idea how to apply it. And then there was talk about, well, how much does it really change the state of knowledge and the landscape of you know, research methods? And if it does, we're basically throwing out the past couple decades or half century of, of knowledge in our field, which really isn't, isn't an adequate way of doing things. So I think it might have been at a conference when we were, you know, talking together and we were excited about what we could do. And we said, let's go talk to one of these publishers. Let's go to one of the publishers um, where they have this display table and pitch an idea to them for a book. And it was multilingual matters. And we pitched this idea to them and they were really excited about it. And so we almost had like a verbal promise of, of a contract. It wasn't necessarily a blank check. Yes, you can write whatever book you want, but it was, you know, there's something there. Go write us a book proposal. And and then we spent the next sort of two years trying to figure out, well, what is this book we want to write? We have no idea exactly what was going to go into it just yet. See? What you're doing, again, I, 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 I kind of want to I want to bring up the word again, courageous. Again, talking about that paper that the, the paper you, you just published um, where mm -hmm. you did the replication, that was courageous because you replicated a study which your advisor was a co-author on, A. And then this other idea, you're introducing – complexity theory and research methods and you're pointing out not in an aggressive way how some previous designs have been how do you say maybe um i don't know i don't know the right word it's maybe not as robust as as they could have been so what you're doing is you're you're introducing a topic and you're saying well 
this is this is the way of the future and this is how people should be thinking about this this is how we can improve research into this field but at the same time you're also going to be opening up to criticism where it's going to say well does that mean all these other research studies have not been um producing quality results even though they've been published in these 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 really established journals um mm-hmm. so that's a tough kind of uh balance I, I I wonder how you, how both of you are, are managing that. It, it seems like you're managing it well, but I would I would think there's there's probably a pushback. There's always going to be pushback. Something new, especially when you're you're putting things in the past. You're critiquing things that were sort of established in the past, right? There's that. I mean, at the same time, you know, we have to be perfectly honest about it and say most of our inspiration came from working with Sultan himself. Because if you've ever met him or spoke to him, you realize that he's He's such a maverick in the sense that it's almost like don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, because while you're doing things, you're, you're apt to discover something that's been just, just beyond that, that sense of understanding. And so doing new work, edgy work is good sometimes, even though you don't know know exactly where it will lead. And for us, it was also, so it was linked partly to this desire to do work that was, I guess, more in line with reality, that if everything is connected and things are dynamic, then how do we do that in terms of research methods? So that was the first part of it. And then, of course, the next layer is, well, if I guess there's this trend towards more rigorous research, what does that look like when we look back on the field? And for us, that's the psychology of language learning. If we look back and we assess what research has already been done, is there, I mean, are there lessons, are there takeaways for how we can do better? And so that's what led us to the replication study. But again, very much in line with the kind of work that we had been inspired to do under his guidance. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's because maybe that you have that confidence. Um, I would say, you know, co- conferences are kind of shut down at, at the moment, but a lot of the conferences in, in my in my small experience, a lot of the conferences that I've been to, um, when you compare what you're talking about in the book, a lot of the research that's being done is, I don't even know the word, I don't even know the word for it. Uh, if people don't know what's rigorous and what's not, it's almost, it's almost, there's a, there's an issue of ignorance, right? But then there's also the issue, the, the issue of the established practices, right? It mm-hmm. seems like a lot of the research that people are doing are not really on the level of what you're proposing, how people should think about their research, at least from my perspective. So from my perspective, this seems a bit new. Am I wrong? Are most of the people on the same wavelength of what you guys are doing? Or is this sort of, are we, or is the whole field a little bit behind? Well, I think first you have to ask yourself if people have adopted this theory in the first place. So if this isn't your underlying, I guess, worldview, that everything is connected and that everything's dynamically changing, then it doesn't require you to adopt a new way of doing things. So there are many people for whom this is a step too far. But for those people who sort of have seen the light or who kind of understand that, yes, there is a a closer approximation of reality we can come to, then the question really is, have the methods I've been using, are, are those methods, will they serve the purpose to discover new things and push the field forward. And I think the question there is what we tried to answer in the book, that many people 
they've realized, no, the methods of the past aren't adequate, but were unable to, I guess, propose an alternative or did not have the answer for now what should I turn to? Um, so I think there's a lot of experimentation going on. And even these methods we had written into the book, many of them we had never used ourselves. We were learning about them as we wrote the book. Um, but I think there's, there's generally a kind of acceptance or excitement about where this can take us. These new methods can open up entirely new pockets and avenues of research. And in, in the one year that it's been out, people have begun using these methods. I've seen it. I can see it in my Google Scholar where I, I'm, you know, I'm getting pop, pop-ups for new articles that people have been using these methods that nobody's ever used in the field. That's great. How do you balance that as an editor? Or as a reviewer for journals, I know you are an editor for the journal for the psychology of language learning, and I think you're also a reviewer for some other journals. How do you how do you manage that that balance where you don't want to be too harsh with someone, right? If you feel that the the design is not really there where where it should be, it must be tough, right? Because again, that that idea like I I don't know if I'm doing something wrong if I don't know what's right. So mm-hmm. if you read a paper, which, which was in earnest done, maybe, you know, earnestly with like good designs or, or good ideas or good, but the design wasn't quite right. Do you gently try to say, you know, please read this book and then re- resubmit or <laughs> like, how do you, how, how do you manage that? I think like most proponents of complexity theory, uh, certainly I was on the receiving end of this kind of feedback where people genuinely value the attempt to do something new just because it is, it's a risk. And when you take that risk, there are bound to be either payoffs or, or, um, or not. And so I think, I think the right tack is to kind of guide them toward, I, I, I want to say in my, exa- you know, I, I have, I can think of examples where I've seen a paper and it was conceptualized really well, but then the methods just sort of fell flat. The methods mm. didn't deliver on the promise in the manuscript. Mm. And I think the feedback that I gave was what I've also been given myself by people who are more knowledgeable than me, and that is to rethink whether these are compatible. So it's it's not that inherently there's a right or wrong. It's simply a reorientation to the methods should follow from the problem. What do you want to know? Form follows function. And once you know what you want to know, how are you going to look for that? And that how has to be compatible with what you're looking for. So if you're looking for change, if you're looking for development, you know, that kind of dynamicity, then it's clear that things like linear regression, correlations, and t-tests don't deliver that. And and that way of framing it is not, so it becomes much less about, oh, well, you simply didn't know the right method to use. It's more about here are some methods that can do what you're trying to get at. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I, again, that's what I liked about the conversation with Ali. He, I mean, he didn't say it in, in these words, but he was, he was essentially saying like humans, humans tell the machine what to do. Mm-hmm. So you still have to visualize how you want the, like if you're using SPSS, you have to visualize how you want SPSS to work for you. It's a tool where he was saying some people sort of just, you know, type in the data and say, okay, well, I've done this ANOVA and I've done this T-test and I've done this and that's good. And he's saying, well, no, no, you have to take a step back and you have to think exactly what you want the machine to do. And and that comes back to the design. 
I, I guess real, real quickly, I know this interview is, is, is focused on the book, Research Methods for Complexity Theory and Applied Linguistics, but both of you guys both wrote that paper, The Replication. Did you both see weaknesses? Did you both see the same weaknesses or did you see something a little bit differently than he saw? I don't think a replication starts with a perception of weakness in the initial study. I think okay. where it came from was it really was curiosity, sort of, gee, I wonder if this is as robust as it's made out to be. And can we, can we come up with similar conclusions in a parallel context? And knowing the field of motivation very well, as Ali does, um, because he worked on that for his entire PhD, it, it became almost like a, it was a natural extension of work we had already been doing. I should say right away that most of the, the brains behind the motivation part of our papers is usually Ali because he's much more think he thinks much more about that side of things. My PhD was about teachers. And so I think where we started was there's this really intriguing kind of notion in the field and it's gaining traction. And is there a there there? And if there is, we need to run it down. We need to find out what this thing is all about. And so we, you know, we set out to pre-register the study and and it was really interesting because we got in touch with the original authors. It didn't really pan out. We weren't able to sort of collaborate or do anything there. But he must have told you that we wrote this paper and revised it five or six times. There was so much feedback from reviewers. And in the end, it was a pretty well-polished paper, but it looked completely different from what we originally set out to write. Hmm. I, I, I like your mindset. You said you, you said something interesting. You said... When you're looking to replicate a paper, you're not looking for a weakness. See, but isn't that the flip side of the same coin? Are are you are you just a glass glass half full type person? Because isn't that saying the same thing? Like you could say, Oh, I'm looking for a way to make it more robust. And another person can say, Well, I'm looking for weaknesses. What's the difference? Is it just an attitude? I don't think it is. I think but it does go back to that. And something that we were taught you know, during our um, apprenticeship under Zoltan was that you can succeed and do good work without tearing down the work of others. Um, so the idea that you only succeed by competing or by finding flaws in others' work, showing how your work improves on theirs, I think it's, I think that's sort of a fallacy. It's more about if there are things that kind of they're energizing the entire field and you get a sense of what people are talking about or writing about. There are rumblings of sort of new books being put out and you want to jump on that bandwagon. You want to insert yourself into the conversation. And that's, I think that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to say, look, there's this thing. Vision is becoming big. Let's do a study about vision, but let's do it slightly differently. Let's take a big flagship study and try our own version of it and see what we come up with. And it could have fallen flat. To be honest, language learning might have said, good try, submit somewhere else. They took a gamble on that paper. And over, it was actually, there were two sets of editors because they were transitioning the editorial team. And both of those sets of editors were extremely encouraging. And they really worked with us. So they, so kudos to them for that, for taking that risk too. All right. Well, let, let's take let's take a step back and let's let's get into the book, um, Research Methods for Complexity Theory in Applied Linguistics. The book starts off with an introduction from someone that you've already mentioned on the show, Diane Larson Freeman, 
who is a professor. Is she still a professor at Michigan? Professor Emeritus at That's Michigan? Right. Um, and I, I, lo- I love it because I, I, it's kind of related to how I, th- how I think about this podcast. Um, you read about people that are, that are doing really cool stuff and then you can actually talk to them. So you said you had already been reading her work and even back in 2008 and probably, you know, you were reading stuff before that, but you were really into her in 2008, 2014, you got to meet her. Was that, was that the first time you, you met her? I think that was the first time I was properly introduced to her and that we sat down and had a conversation. Yes. Was that, was that exciting for you? So actually meeting someone you had been reading? That was really exciting. And the thing about meeting Diane, so she's genuinely welcoming of people who are interested in complexity theory and doesn't attempt to proselytize. So very accepting of, of newcomers. And I think Zoltan had told her, I've got a couple of PhD students who are interested in complexity theory. Could you talk to them? And she was like, great, let's talk. And I don't think at first she assumed that we we were doing any work, just that we were interested in it. But as soon as we started laying out some ideas, I think I saw sparks, you know, behind your eyes, like, whoa, these guys have ideas for how to go forward with this. And that's kind of where, uh, when we took this field trip to the Sherwood Forest, we were in a bus and I was sitting with Diane and we were talking on the, on the trip there. And she was, it was almost like those creative moments where you're just riffing off each other's ideas and, you know, it was exciting. When I say that I first got into it in 2010, that really is the first time I picked up her book or anything about this. Mm. So I'm a relative newcomer. I've only been reading and thinking about this for a decade. She first wrote a paper in 97 based Mm. on a talk she gave in 1994, but she wasn't the only one working on it because there was a small pocket of people in the Netherlands. Um, I think early on, we used to call them the Honingen Trio. They are at the University of Honingen in the Netherlands. But they weren't just three people. It was a big team. And they were working on DST, dynamic systems theory. Now, the only difference between complexity theory and DST, dynamic systems theory, is that they originate in different domains of the natural sciences. One is physics and one is, um, I think it might be mathematics, pure mathematics. So Diane knew people like Kies de Bot, Marlijn Verspoor, van der Looy in the Netherlands who are working on DST and so their idea was kind of symbi- their their ideas were symbiotic. They were really working around the same ideas, just with different concepts. But I hadn't been involved with them, only with her. And, and when I met her, she was one of the first I met working on these ideas. Now she she makes a distinction, or or you highlight the distinction that she made, which is that teachers or researchers should think about language development rather than language acquisition. Uh, it's a it's a totally different way of thinking about the whole environment, right? It is. And I think one thing that she's helped me do well is to really kind of temper my excitement around this because she has so many so many years of kind of the perspective she has is it's not just mile wide and you know it's it's also miles deep. Mm. She has decades of perspectives on the field from where we've come with linguistic theories, cognitive theories, and now social theories to complexity theory so she can see how everything fits together in the field and so when she brought in this idea of development the idea that there's no end there's no state it's all just kind of self-organized development i thought that that's really intuitive and that shouldn't be i guess controversial and in my talks with her 
She said, well, wait, you have to realize where people are coming from. They haven't just been in the field for a decade or two like you. Instead, they have years of thinking about language acquisition in terms of states and in terms of acquiring language as if it were a commodity. And so for them to think of development now as a kind of open-ended, self-organized system is really controversial. So for me, that gives me really healthy perspective to kind of see things from how everybody else sees them. Well, if I could just jump in with like an anecdote from my life to sort of connect it with how dynamic these things are. So for example, I'm living in Japan and I take Japanese lessons. Um, and, and, I've, and I've recently started to sort of up them to, to twice a week. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be taking a test pretty soon. And I had been studying really hard maybe last year and I took a test, but I, I kind of stopped studying grammar hard. And I just been, you know, listening and, and practicing speaking, that kind of stuff. And I had this, um, this lesson and I just, I just had forgotten like all the basics of grammar. And during the whole lesson, I'm talking to this woman, she's this really nice lady. And I'm just beating myself up on the inside the whole time. I think from your example, you know, the parallel to language is, it's pretty straightforward. We often think in terms of simple and proximate cause and effect relationships between things that we do in life. There's input. There must be some learning that results from input or there's practice. Practice must, I guess, lead to, you know, additional fluency or accuracy. And it's the same with interactions with people. And to go back to my example, you know, becoming a parent, I would come home as well and see my daughter screaming on the floor at 6 p.m., wondering, I wonder what's going on, why, why she's doing that. And I would probably think something like tired, stubborn, hungry. And instead, I started thinking in terms of she's been out all day. I've been out all day. There are a variety of factors. Um, she's probably hungry and tired. And all of these things come together, and it's not really possible or necessary to understand a single proximate cause for what's going on. So if you think about language development that way as well, I guess you kind of let go of really wanting to understand everything in a very clear-cut way. Mm. So you lived in Korea. You, we talked about it in the, in the pre-show meeting. You lived there for seven years. Um, and I think Ali mentioned when you were writing that the the replication study, you the data sample is based in Korea, right? So can That's you right. can you can you talk a little bit about your time in Korea and I mean first to understand there's um a back sort of backstory to who I am, and that is I was born in Asia and spent much of my life growing up in Asia. Um Oh really? So I was born in India to traveling parents and um eventually my mom settled in Thailand. And so I spent a number of years there. Oh, wow. And when I decided to go to go to college, I went to live with my maternal grandparents in France. And that's where I learned French. Whoa. Completely immersed. You know, there was nobody there who spoke much English. And and there I met my wife. And she was Korean. She is Korean. And and so from there, we decided to go back to to be close to her parents. And once we were in Korea... I began a distance degree that my master's degree was done by distance through Nottingham. And and I would travel to Nottingham once a year to do, um, I think there were formal 
supervision sessions and there were summer classes and things like that. And so those years I spent in Korea were also spent studying. I was, I was working through most of the year, but, but studying by distance part-time. Oh, that's kind of what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. That's I'm, I'm, I'm studying um, distance at Macquarie university. So and that's... I benefit immensely from, from multitasking. I mean, you must be able to find ways to apply what you're learning, you know, all kinds of things, right? I love it. I love it. I, I think, I think it's amazing. And I can, I, I can conduct research at the university I'm at. Right. It's great. I'm so, I'm so happy that that opportunity exists. So now that you're at Florida state and we'll jump back into the book in a second, but now that you're at Florida state, what kind of, what kind of classes are you teaching now? I teach a variety of classes. In fact, this is my fourth year. And I think I've just had the opportunity to teach every student body we have in the college of education. Wow. Undergraduates who are trained to become K-12 teachers in the state of Florida, online master's students from around the world, doctoral students specializing in the field and, you know, doing an apprenticeship in research. So the classes I teach range from practical oriented courses about accommodating cultural and linguistically diverse students in, you know, public schools in the U.S. to things that are more specialized in research to, I guess, seminar courses that really kind of dovetail with my own interests and that focus really narrowly on maybe one concept and, and how to really dig into that. That is so cool. Uh, is that, do you prefer uh, teaching a wide range of classes or in the future, would you rather focus on one, one style? You know, I used to think that I would like to teach more around my expertise and my interests, but as I've taught other student populations, Every time I teach a new body of students, I learn something new and I don't think I can ever, I don't want to stop learning. So I think, yeah, teaching more different kinds of students is better for me. All right. Let, let's, let's jump into the book, um, Research Methods for Complexity Theory in Applied Linguistics. I think one of the, the good things about this book is I think wherever you are in your research, there's a chapter for you in this book. So um, the first part is introduction to complexity theory. Part two is qualitative methods. And part three is quantitative methods. Part four, the future of CDST methodology. Did you design this book for someone to start from the beginning and read to the end? Or did you design it to sort of, okay, you read part one, get the idea, and then go to the chapter that you need to, to study? Is that, is that how you were kind of thinking about it? I think we had two different ideas. First of all, the book had to be accessible. It had to be for someone with no knowledge that they could pick it up and get from zero to 60 quite fast in their own research. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the qualitative and quantitative chapters in part two and three are all about, that you could completely leave part one behind and come back to it in your own time. Mm. But at the same time, it couldn't really be dumbed down. It had to be, it had to stand in its own right so that when experts like Diane and other you know, of our contemporaries picked it up, they would read it and think, hmm, they've done this field justice. And so that's what part one is about, which is it's much more meaty and it really goes into the underlying principles of complexity theory, but it's not for everybody, but it's there if you want it, right? So there's sort of two things going on. All right. Well, let's, I want to focus on uh, part three, quantitative methods and uh, multi-level modeling. Okay. So a couple of caveats. First, Ali wrote this chapter, but 
what I can say is take a step back for a sec. Okay. I would say that in, you know, in general, our field approaches data from two perspectives. And this, we often talk about this in complexity theory research, and that is group level data or individual level data. Okay. At the group level, we often aggregate means and we talk about cross sections and general tendencies in a sample, right? Mm -hmm. So we can do regression analysis. We can talk about groups versus other groups. And we can get really sophisticated with random and fixed effects, and we can talk about between or within group designs. But there's another side of things, and that's the individual level data. And those two often don't match up. There are often there are commonalities, but often when we have a group aggregate, no individual in the group actually has that level of it. And when we look at individuals, every individual is unique in their own right. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I would say, groups versus individuals. And some people make a big deal about complexity theory only being relevant to individual level designs. For Ali and I, we don't take quite a hard stance. We say that there are cross-sectional designs and group level things that we can do. So for me, multi-level modeling is, it's still a group level cross-sectional design. But the other thing to think about is, what are you getting at? And in complexity theory, I think there are two things we like to get at. One is relations, how things are connected, and one is dynamics, how things change. So there are relation-intensive methods, and there are dynamic-intensive um, methods. And for the relation-intensive methods, we could think of multi-level modeling being one of these that gets at relations. It doesn't really get at dynamics or change in the sense of um, like a method like time series analysis does with rich high T data where you can see tens or even hundreds of data points for an individual and look at developmental trajectories and things like that. But what multi-level modeling does is it says, if you look at data, there are dependencies in the real world data we collect, there are hierarchies, individuals, and the term is clustered. Individuals are clustered in groups. They could be schools, classes, institutions. And when you look at those levels of hierarchy, how individuals are clustered into groups, that's what gives you the levels. So multi-level says, let's take these different levels of reality into account. And so that's the starting point for multi-level modeling. All right. Well, let's kind of wrap up. There's two more things I want to talk about. I guess first, what was your, what was your favorite anecdote that you included in the book? I'll, I'll give you mine. Uh, one thing I really liked about the book is you, you include uh, works of other authors, you know, peppered throughout the book, which is great. Again, you, again, you'll kind of make that point. Okay, well, we're talking about this now, um, but if you want to learn more about this, you should read this person's work. Okay, so you'll cite it in the book, but then you'll also include sections of other people's books and sometimes their anecdotes. My favorite anecdote of the book is is the story about the statistician who's got his car packed up to go on a holiday. And his wife and his wife says, uh, where's, where's the camera? And he just answers, it's either in the car or it's in the house. And because the car was already packed up, he said, he said, well, I don't, I don't want to take the time to unpack the car. So I'll look at the house. So then he goes in the house. He looks for the camera. The camera's not there. So he deduces that the camera's in the car. What exactly was the point of that story? So I think it had to do with probability and the idea of priors. So the idea is that we make decisions based on prior information. We never come to a situation with zero information. Mm -hmm. And yet 
when we do research, we often construct a new design or we have new research questions. And it's, we, it's almost like we're operating as if we don't know anything yet. And so that, I think that anecdote really illustrates that we need to be much more intentional and I guess informed in the sense of where are we setting out from? We're not setting out from ground zero. There's always a body of work to build on. Um, and that researcher was just showing it through, you know, an everyday example of how he can decide where his camera is. Right. <laughs> what was your, what was your favorite anecdote in the book? I can't remember who he was, but there was, I think it was a Nobel laureate or he was a Fields Medal winner. And he was giving, I think it might've been his congratulatory speech when he was receiving this medal. And, and he basically said, our field has to apologize. I personally have to make amends for my field belatedly coming to the realization that things are not simple and linear. Mm. And I thought that takes, that takes so much humility, but also so much confidence for a senior academic who's being celebrated by his field to get up and say, we're sorry for how we misled the general public and the way we conducted science and to thinking that things, life, natural world were simple and linear when in fact there's so much complexity that we had been basically ignoring. And so that was, I think that was my fear. I would have been, you know, love to see that speech if I can find it. It's simply from many decades ago. So I don't know if I can actually find it. Well, you have this other section in the book, um, where you talk about Nobel Prize winner Werner Heisenberg. Um, and he yes. said, he said, I remember discussions with Niels Bohr, which went through many hours till very late at night and ended almost in despair. And when at the end of the discussion, I went alone for a walk in the neighboring park, I repeated to myself again and again the question, can nature possibly be so absurd as it seems to us in these dot, dot, dot experiments? It's like, what a, what a picture he paints there. Jeez. <laughs> Now, it's go, they're going mad. I think we put that in because that's a little bit how Ali and I felt in the early <laughs> years when we were working together. You know, we would sit in the basement of the Nottingham Library and we'd be there for hours with our notes and we'd be thinking, is what we're doing completely futile? Are we ever going to make any headway with trying to find a way forward with researching complexity theory? And we did. And so it wasn't so much despair, but it was kind of that intellectual workout that, that was involved and those conversations that you don't know how it's going to lead to something productive, but it's about the process really about hashing out those ideas. So I think that was an inspiring anecdote for us. I think that's one thing I liked about the book. Um, I, I heard an interview with Malcolm Gladwell where he talked about, you know, when you're writing a book, you need to offer candy to the readers. Mm -hmm. And this is a dense, it's, it's a dense book and there's lots of concepts and, and people are kind of averse to learning about statistics anyway. I don't know why. Um, but you do, you, you give the, the reader some candy. You, you have some anecdotes. You put in some interesting, uh, research. Like there was the, the research, um, I think Daryl Bem, 2011, his, his conclusions on precognition. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting part of the book. Where, you know, he got published in this, this, this really prestigious journal and, and, you know, his conclusions really made no sense and they didn't let anyone replicate it. That was interesting. Like, um, another one was like Vickers, 2010, talking about the warped interpretation of p-values. So 
I think people can approach this book. You don't need to sit down and read it from beginning to end. Um, that might be a little bit too difficult, but there, th you do a good job of pacing us, right? So it's like we, we go a little bit deep on one section, but then we can sort of like come back to life and, 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 and hear about a story. So Definitely. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you, did you, did you think that that was important to help pace the reader? Is that why you put those in? Or is that just, those are stories that you liked over the course of your reading? I think both, because on the one hand, we wanted the beginning of every chapter to offer readers kind of opportunity to come up for air, you know, after the right. deep dive, there has to be a little bit of, okay, let's take a breather now. <laughs> and, and you can't really process so much dense information without kind of, you know, making it a bit more, bringing it to life a bit. So those stories for us, and we see them now as part of the narrative around complexity theory, that it's not so much there's this extremely dense theory that many people can't get their heads around and don't know how to use, but instead it's part of a broader kind of journey in the social sciences to do better work, to kind of hold the, hold the field to more account and to really chart the way forward with the kind of methods that people will adopt. Decades from now, we may see these, these methods take off or we may not. But for us, it was really kind of putting it out there and saying, look, if you're a risk taker and you're interested in these things, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot to interest you. And so I think those stories for us were to kind of spark that interest for, for newcomers to these. All right. Well, let's end, let's end with this because the book began and ended with this concept where um, Diane Larson Freeman, one of the, one of the praise, one of the praise that she offered the book was that you didn't steer away from certain controversies in the field. And one of the controversies was pre preference for mixed methods. Um, and then you, you end the book talking about a recommendation for integrated methods. So I guess uh, let's end with this. Why is this a controversy and why is the term integrated more appropriate than mixed? I think one of the things we wanted to stay away from was bandwagons. And Diane knows that Ali and I were both quite opinionated about the methods we use. And we don't shy away from that in the book. Um, and I think mixed methods is one bandwagon. We see people in the field tend to adopt mixed methods, I guess, fairly unintelligently just for the sake of doing it because others are mm -hmm. and almost thinking as if that's the way we do science. And when it's the default, then there are a lot of problems and I guess unquestioned practices. What we were seeing was there was a way forward. And instead of mixing methods where they didn't really intuitively, you know, fit together, integrating methods was a much more intelligent way of going about it. And so it might look like this. You're doing a study, a quantitative study, and you think, hmm, you know what? It'd be really nice if I could check the validity of this experiment with quantitative, with qualitative data, asking whoever the participants to report about what they're doing throughout the experiment. And so it provides a new perspective of triangulating what people are doing rather than just slapping on an interview in what we like to call a quick and dirty qualitative component to a quantitative study or vice versa. Mm. And so we offer this kind of template and we say, if you're thinking about the purpose of the research, if it's exploratory or if it's hypothesis testing, if you've thought about the, the level of data, if it's group level or individual, 
And then if you've thought about the methods, whether they're quantitative or qualitative, chances are you can integrate those different levels into something that's really both sophisticated, but also will really be insightful. And when it comes time to report the data, there's going to be so much there because you integrated those different levels of the design. The, the book is Research Methods for Complexity Theory in Applied Linguistics. Uh, Dr. Hyver, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thanks so much, Jonathan. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.